Well, I think without a doubt, one of the hardest things in life is feeling lonely. And perhaps even harder than loneliness is the suffering that loneliness often brings, sort of what, what goes on in our mind a lot of times. You know, a lot of times when we're lonely or when we're suffering, I know a lot of us think this way. We think, well, I don't want to be a burden to people. Uh, other times, uh, people will know somebody who's lonely or they're suffering or they're in a kind of a deep, dark place, and they they don't say anything to them. They avoid them because they don't know what to say. And, you know, over time, I've, I've come to learn there's just a few different things that, that may be helpful. You know, when you talk to somebody who you know goes into a lot of deep valleys or somebody who's chronically ill or somebody who's been through a lot of different things, you don't say things to them like, are you all better? That, that's really not helpful. A lot of times I will just say to people, how are you feeling today? How are you doing today? How's, how's this moment for you if, it, if it's still raw? Uh, psalm 142 is a psalm of what I would call stretched faith. The psalmist, we believe that it's David, his name is on it, or it's somebody writing about David, is expressing his feelings to God. Uh, this psalm is about fighting fear that is coming from the outside as well as fear that is coming from the inside. So you know how things on the outside can be bad, and then you internalize them, and it just sort of just churns and churns and churns, and really you have two kinds of fears working, or one can make one worse than the other. And as we just read, David is simply overwhelmed. What I love about it is you get this kind of stuff in the Bible, and you don't see God going, well, forget you. You know, you're not trusting in me. You're not walking in victory. You know, what, what's, what's up with you? He doesn't say that at all. He, he actually, the Lord allows in his word, the writings of a man who was overwhelmed. And Psalm 142 is very short. And to be honest with you, we've done some very well-known psalms here. It's, it's relatively unknown psalm. And it's about feeling alone and afraid and that's something that's very common to the human experience. I don't know why we just don't want to admit it. Uh, you know, I mean, some people want to admit that everything's fine all the time. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm just fine. You know, and just, everything's good. And, and you, know, you know that that's not the case in their life sometimes. And other people, they have nothing but horrible things to report. And so there's no joy either. We want to find that, that balance. And when it comes to feeling alone and feeling afraid, I know that a lot of you feel that right now. And I know that a lot of you uh, have either been there or you know loved ones recently or even there now. They're, they're, they're sitting in hospital beds alone, you know, compromised on people visiting you in the hospital because of, of the virus. And so it's, it's very, very difficult. And here, I think when it comes to feeling alone and afraid and, and you know, just not knowing which end is up, I guess, if you will, I think the Lord is actually training us for that. He's actually teaching us that it's okay to have those feelings, but there's, there's a place we come to him. And it's sort of, David's on sort of like a roller coaster, and, and God seems okay with it. He's not, he's not up, upset about it. And so here we join David in his loneliness and his isolation and you think, well, how could David be lonely and isolated? I, if you know something about his, uh, you know, his history, he had a big family, and then he became the king. So he was always surrounded by people. And so he's, we join him in his loneliness and isolation. 
And, he, and he's fighting off those feelings of loneliness and isolation through his relationship with the Lord. Yet, although we may feel alone and deserted, that's, again, we do feel that way sometimes. We just have to acknowledge it. Sometimes I find that just acknowledging it, putting a name on something, is, is very, very helpful. And so we learn as followers of Jesus when we are alone and we feel deserted that Jesus is with us and Jesus understands and Jesus supports us. And many of us have learned, or probably better yet, we are learning from times of distress that those times actually are beneficial in the sense of that God uses them to teach us how to draw closer to him. It's, it, I don't know about you, I find it easier to draw close to God when I'm in a bind, when things are not going well, when I feel alone. You think, do you ever feel alone? I, as a pastor, I feel alone all the time, much more than I ever did before I was a pastor. And so he teaches us how to draw closer to Jesus. And I want to say this in love, and I know what I'm saying is a lot easier said than executed upon, but when you're depressed, when you're lonely, isolation seems like the smart thing to do. It seems like the best thing to do is to isolate you from people, keep people at arm's length, not let anybody get close to you, but that is not healthy for you. It's not healthy. We, we, we need to be close to people. We need to get help when we need to get help. And you say, well, people don't understand me. Well, you know what? You're probably right. People probably don't understand you. And honestly, you probably don't understand them either. And so I think it's important to remember, as one of the brothers here at our church always says, we need each other. And so it's important to remember that we do need one another. And while God most commonly uses the word of the Lord to minister to people, he also ministers his love through other people. So sometimes God sends someone to you that needs his love, and you say something to them, and then you get in your car and you go, was well, that the right thing? And the other guy's barking in your ear, what a stupid thing you said. And then you hear six months later, you know, remember when you said that to me that day? And you go, oh, no, here we go. They go, that was a big moment for me. Turn me right around. That was, that was a word right for my season of life. And so, and so we, need, we need one another. Um, the Psalms heading says a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. So just think about the cave. And the title of our message tonight is God in our loneliness. So there's David. Picture David in a cave, lonely, and he needs to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, let me confess something to you. I love caves. I love going to caves. Pam does not like caves at all. At all. So whenever we're driving down the highway, uh, if we see a sign for a cave, you know, you're going down Virginia or something like that, I'm like, we should go to that cave. And she's like, I hate caves. And then she'll tell me why she hates caves. She says they're dark, they're cold, they're lonely, and they're scary. And I go, yes, why do you hate them? <laughs> right? And, and on that we agree. But as a kid, before I was a follower of Jesus, whenever I would have the opportunity to be in a cave, I would imagine myself to be a pirate, 
hiding in, in a cave with my buried treasure so nobody could come and find me. But then when I became a follower of Jesus, I imagined myself as being David, who often hid in caves looking for a different kind of treasure. He was looking for the love of God in his loneliness. And that's one thing the cave can do for you. Yes, it is, it is cold, it is lonely, it is, it is scary, it is dark, but you can reach out and you can find the Lord there. For David, if you will, caves became what we call his prayer closet. It became a place where he really related to God. And sometimes the cave of loneliness can be that for us. If we let it, and if we try to continue to communicate with God and listen for his voice. Now, Bible scholars disagree on which cave hiding this is in the life of David. 1 Samuel 22, if you're taking notes, the cave at Adullam or Adullam. 1 Samuel 24, that the cave at uh, Angedi. Possibly another cave incident. If you, you know, he was always out on the run and stuff like that, so he would hide in caves and lot. Or even... When we get to verse 7, he talks about being in prison. Maybe that prison was like a cave to David. I'll say this, what I usually say. We'll let the Bible scholars debate this, and we'll move on to things that perhaps might help us a little bit more in understanding God and living out our lives. So again, we don't really know if David wrote this or somebody else did. So let's stick with what we do know. Here's something I think we can say we do know. In a time of solitude and loneliness, David turns to the Lord with his request. David, or King David, turns to a higher king, a king higher than any other king. Now, if you're new to the Bible, just a very, very brief history of the life of David might help. Uh, we have to go back before he was the king. The people of God, they said, to God, we want a king like the other nations have. So God said, okay, I can handle that one. Easy, That's an easy one for me. And God gave them King Saul. So don't forget that God picked King Saul for the job. And so he gave him King Saul. And this was during the ministry of the prophet Samuel. And guess what? Saul was a king like the other nations had. Not very good. Not very good. So uh, the Lord told Samuel, Sammy, come here. I got another kind of king in mind. I, I don't want this uh, Saul anymore. He's, he's messed things up. And I want a man after my own heart, or the man after God's own heart. And so it turned out that it was a shepherd boy, the youngest boy in his family, by the name of David. Now, fast forward, David killed Goliath, the Philistine giant, and then he would eventually enter into the service of King Saul's army, and he excelled. Now, he was the king-elect, if you will. You know that time period in between when you have the outgoing president and the incoming president. So he was the king-elect, and Saul wasn't too happy about it. He did not want David to be king, nor did he like David's popularity. Uh, Saul became very, very jealous of it. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7 through 9, so the women sang as they danced and said. So they're out in the streets. They're all dancing. This is the number one song on Spotify in Jerusalem at this point in time. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
So Saul is not the warrior that David is. And Saul was a big dude. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and they have, uh, to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? He's like, the people want him to be the king. And then verse 9 says, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. So David escapes. Saul's throwing spears at him. David escapes, and Saul doesn't just go, oh, well, I guess he's out of here. He becomes the hunted king. And in that sense, he is a type of the Lord Jesus who would come along a thousand years later that Jesus himself was the hunted king. So let's jump in. Psalm 142, verse 1, begins with what we call a lament. It says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. What's a supplication? A supplication is a personal appeal to God in light of who he is. We might say a personal appeal to God in light of his kindness. Another version says this, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him, I declare, another version says, I tell or I reveal, I declare before him my trouble. So David says, I cry out to the Lord. I pour out myself. I pour out my heart to the Lord. And he says he lays out before the Lord what he calls my trouble. Now, does this sound like mellow prayer? Like, oh, dear Lord, thank you so much. You're so good. I don't think so. I think this is loud, I think this is fervent, I think this is urgent, and I do not think this is mellow. He is crying out to God. Yet it's interesting, he says, I cry out to the Lord, I make my complaint uh, before him. That's what we call talking in the third person. He's mentioning God in the third person instead of directly. You get the feeling, that the sensation that he feels totally alone. Like he's just sitting there maybe thinking about a recent prayer, t- prayer time like he's, I'm, I'm cry out to the Lord. He's talking to himself, I cry out to the Lord. I pour out my heart, but I'm here. I'm in the cave. I'm, I'm, I'm all alone. And there's a tension here. Remember we talk about the tensions here that we really have to, we have to keep in line. They, the tensions are not opposite things. They're help, if you will, that keeps things strong and in balance here. So important for us to understand. There's a balance here between his pain his suffering and his frustration and his trust in the Lord. So, so you, have, you have the one side where all that pain and all that suffering, all that frustration and the tension that's holding David together, not falling apart at the seams totally, is his trust in the Lord. So David has both. Now, here's an interesting thing about this. Many of us were raised never to question God. Many of us were raised like that. Uh, Or many of us were also raised to never be disappointed in God and what God's doing. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I have the occasion to do funerals. And a lot of times at funerals, I will say, I know a lot of you are angry with God right now. And you can see the people who are told, I know I can't be that angry. I am, but I'm not going to admit that I am. I don't want him to know that I'm angry with him. And I always say to them this, 
Here's the thing with being angry with God. I know we were taught not to be angry with God growing up, but nobody ever told the Bible writers that. Like They didn't get that email. They didn't get that text. They didn't read that. And a lot of times they're angry, frustrated, questioning God. And it's funny, you meet, yeah, funny, but interesting that you meet people, maybe there's a, there's a luncheon after a funeral or something like that. You know, the pastors, we go for the free food. And so we, we go there, and a lot of people will walk up to me and go, you know, when you said that the Bible writers would get mad at God sometimes? And I said, yes, they go, do you know how freeing that was to me? And I'm like, he's a big boy. He can handle it. He can handle it. And here's the thing I always tell people, listen, if you, we learned this in Job. If you're still talking to God, you're okay. It's when you go silent on him. That's when you're in trouble. God would much rather have you in a season of complaining than a season of silence. But in fairness to David, it was something we have to note here. We've said this many times before, if you've been around here, that words change meaning over time. And, and there's two I think we should note here. He says in verse 2, my complaint. So what, what is complaining in our kind of language? Well, you know, it's like, I don't like this, I don't like that. And a lot of times, complaining has a sense of self-righteousness about it. Like, I know better. I'm complaining to God. God, this situation, stinkorama. I have a much better plan for my life than you do, and you need to come right away. And so a lot of times we have that, 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 that self-righteousness that is with it. But for David, when he talks about my complaint, the language of it really means something like this. It means that the thoughts that the crisis is producing in his heart. That's what he's saying to God. He's saying, God, this is where I'm really uncomfortable. I don't like what's going on more than anything because of what it's producing in my heart, what, what, I, what I seem to be becoming in the midst of it. Now, the word for trouble carries the idea of being confined. So he's, he says, my trouble is I'm confined. I'm, I'm in the cave. I know Saul and his guys are on the outside or my enemies are on the outside. I feel confined. I'm trapped. I'm trapped. In modern day language, would have never said this until recently. I feel, God, like I'm on lockdown. I feel like I'm caught in the house. I feel like I can't even get out and get some fresh air. And you need to get out and get some fresh air if you've been sitting in the house. If you can't get out of the house, open a window. Very, very important. And so he lays it out before the Lord. We lay it out before the Lord. But here's the thing. When we lay something out for somebody, why do we do that? We lay it out. We say, hey, look, I want to show you this. Let me lay out some stuff I, I you know, got. Those of you who like to go to you know, flea markets and antique shows and buy junk. I mean treasure, sorry, my bad. And, and, you, and you like to lay it out on the table for people to see. We don't lay out our troubles for God to see. Rather, we lay out our troubles so we can see him in our troubles. So we can see his love and his care. And, and Lord willing, that will in time Help us to see. You just picture some you know, small jewelry or something like that on the table and say that represented your troubles. And then you plop the Lord down in the middle of the table. And he's huge. See, we lay out our troubles before God 
and we talk to God about our troubles, and hopefully we'll begin to see that he is much bigger than our problems and our troubles. But before we relate too much, let's also note the fervency of how David prayed when he was alone with God. In our, our use of the word trouble, or we could even say of being feeling trapped or confined, but in our use of the word trouble, I've noticed that trouble puts a passion into our prayers. One that, one that blessing and complacency never could. It, it just sort of, trouble seems to light a fire in our soul that just the status quo just does not. Why? Because when, when we're in a place of blessing, when we're in a place of complacency, everything seems okay, everything smooth. But, but trouble, but difficulty puts us in a place of dependency. It puts us in a place of crying out to the Lord. I mean, we may joyfully say, thank you for the blessing, but it's a very different way, thing of praying when things are, you know are completely out of your hands. And so here it's as if he's saying, Lord, I know that right now you're the only one who can help. And, he, and, he's, and he's totally dependent upon the Lord. Uh, trouble um, can also, uh, when we pray to God when we're in trouble, can also take a follower of Jesus away from their obsession on the situation. Do you have anything in your life that you're just obsessed on right now? Pray. Remember we said in Philippians to, to trade your anxiety for prayer. And, and, and to pray. To, to say to the Lord, that you, this is what's going on. I don't want to obsess over this. And I want to focus on you, Lord. And I've noticed this in my own life, that when I focus on the Lord, it doesn't mean I ignore the trouble and don't do anything about it, but when I focus on the Lord, the clarity it brings to my life. I'm amazed how just even it takes like two minutes just of quietness and the clarity God brings to my heart. So trouble changes our prayers from mere formality to the kind of praying like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 39 says, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is that? That is the cup of God's wrath. That's when he talks about the cup in the Bible. I'm just picture a full cup and God poured out the totality of his cup of his wrath against sin on Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus says this, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what did the crisis do to Jesus? The, Jesus, you know, fully God, fully man. What, 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 did, what did it do? He fell on his face. He prayed. He was... He was desperate. He was depending upon his heavenly father. He was focused on his heavenly father. And what does he say? Oh, my father. He doesn't say, dear God. He doesn't do that. He says, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let the cross pass from me. If there's another way for people's sins to be forgiven, I'm in, I'm there. But in that sense of dependent prayer to his personal, loving, heavenly Father, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 3, David continues 
when my spirit was overwhelmed. Another version says, grew faint or grew weak. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Let's just stop there for one second. Here is clear evidence that God's people sometimes get overwhelmed. I know you're like scratching your ear. Did he really just say that? Did he re- if I ever let people know that I'm overwhelmed about something, they'll think I'm not so spiritual. Don't worry. They probably don't think you're that spiritual anyway. None of us really are. Right? I just look at Jesus and I'm like, I am not too spiritual. Okay? He says, when my spirit was overwhelmed, God's people get overwhelmed at times. Now, if you're always overwhelmed, that's a different story. You know, some people, they, they lose a loved one. They lose a spouse or a child or something like that. And a month later, they're like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I keep crying. I'm overwhelmed. I'm like, I can tell you what's wrong with you. You lost someone very close to you. I would be more worried if you weren't overwhelmed. And it take, you have to give yourself time. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, look at this, then you knew my path. Another version says you knew my way or you watched over my way. So what is he doing? He's now starting to turn to God. He went from crying out, verse 1 and 2. Now he's turning to God. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare or a trap for me. He says they've hidden a trap for me. So what's he doing? Now he's turning to God. He says, you knew. No more third person. No talking about God like he's not in the room. This is, a very, this is very important and critical to our walk with God. David knows that his spirit is growing weak. Self-awareness is something that if you're in the business world, you've heard a lot about that. It's sort of a buzz phrase. Self-awareness is so very, very important. Taking a spiritual inventory of your life is very, very important. And I don't mean just once or twice a year. A regular spiritual inventory. You see, because growing weak can happen to any of us, but David takes the next critical step that we all need to take when we know we're growing weak. He transfers his trust. He transfers his trust from his feelings to the Lord. He transfers his weakness to the strength of God. Also, he transfers his, I don't know what's going on, to the Lord's knowledge. He says, the Lord knows my path. He knows my way. He realizes that nothing that he experiences is out of God's view. God is not surprised by what's happening in our lives. Sometimes, loved ones, it's important to remember this, When you've given up hope, you have to come back to God because sometimes hope is all you're going to have. Those of you who, you know, you like to share with people or help people in need or something like that or new Christians or something like that, one of the basic things of counseling, biblical counseling is, at the beginning, if you can help establish hope, a lot will happen after that. Because hopelessness is a very sad thing. 
It's a very difficult thing for, for, people to, uh, for people to deal with. And sometimes hope is all you have. I tell some guys in the ministry that I've come to the realization that, that my calling to the ministry or your calling to serve God in whatever capacity he has you serving him, sometimes your calling is all you have. Sometimes it's just not going well for you. I often say in church world, I feel like I'm a, a two-year-old who mom just put out in three foot of snow, and I can't get anywhere. I can't get anywhere. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. Sometimes hope in God is all you have when you feel trapped. David has what we might call the fog of despair. He might have right now what we would call overwhelming depression, and he feels helpless against everything. And then, you know what happens? If this is you, I'm not talking about anybody in, in, in particular, but don't, this is not helpful to people. People come along and they go to you, just think happy thoughts. What are you, Pollyanna? <laughs> right? Just think happy thoughts. No, then Christians come along with sort of the just think happy thoughts version that we have is well, you need to slay the giants in your life, just like David slayed Goliath. Okay, let's get that story straight. David was not slaying the giants in his life. David, in that story, represents Jesus, not us. We're not the slayer, okay? You say, are we Goliath? No, Goliath is death. He represents death. You go, who are we? We're David's brothers cowering in the corner going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Okay, that's, that's who we are. But the man after God's own heart, he doesn't do that, so he wisely turns to and continues to focus on the Lord who he knows is watching over him even in the midst of this very difficult situation. Now, I'm saying this really in, in, in all sincerity. I know a lot of followers of Jesus who have difficulties, have struggles with depression. I, I, I know a lot. And I think that the hardest part is to admit it and then to take the next step and get help. Because if, you, if you, you know you have it and you don't take the next step and you don't get help, it just lingers and it lingers and it lingers. And I will tell you, there's no shame in that. You, you see, this guy is depressed, some of the great saints of old. I mean, anybody who's a preacher worth anything loves Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he suffered from great depression. They used to have to send him to France. He was English. They had to send him over to France to relax. And so... This is something that this is, there's no shame in that. What's the worst part about depression is if it becomes chronic, it's not getting help. That's the worst part. And that's important um, also when you feel putting your hope in God is important when you feel the path you took led you to this place. Like you went down this path. You're, you're like, I'm here. I deserve this. But remember what David said. He said, Lord, you knew my path. See, God's not like, whoa, you did all that stupid stuff, Dave. No wonder you're in the cave. 
He doesn't say that to him. He's just allowing David to speak to him. When you're lonely, when you're afraid, when you're down, when you're depressed, when you're ready to give up, remember, you might not know your path, but God knows your path. And simple question, who's more trustworthy, you or God? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here tonight. Let me tell you something about me. I trust God with my life. I trust Jesus with my life. When I go to heaven, they're going to go like, oh, you're here. You're Pastor Jim. You did a lot of decent stuff for people. I'm going to be like, forget that. Forget that. I have put my trust in the life of another. I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ. I trust Jesus with everything. I don't trust me as far as I can throw me. Seriously. Dead seriously. Because I knew what I was like before I was a Christian. Sometimes I drift back there. And not the, some of the ways, but, but in other ways. And so it's very important to, to understand that the Lord knows your path. He knows everything that's going on. That's important here because David, David tells us here that the enemy knows my path too. And, and they've set a trap for me. But here's the thing, that, that the Lord knows the way of escape. For many followers of Jesus, the trap that we fall into is temptation or a sin that you just can't kick. You're just like, I can't get out of this thing. If that's you, if that's you, just get a pen and paper, get a crayon, take a fork and scratch it in the kitchen table. No, don't do that. <laughs> but, but, but you've got to know this verse. You've got to know this verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's pure gold. Pure gold that you don't want to sell. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. In other words, God is not surprised by what you got going. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But, here's the key, with the because a lot of people stopped at the verse there. With the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. When we taught this, this passage in 1 Corinthians 10, we, we said this, that, that you're in trouble and you're looking for a way out and all of a sudden you're in this dark, dark place and there's the exit sign and it's all lit up. Run, run for it. I've had many a young man tell me, well, you know, I was, I was doing pornography at two o'clock in the morning and I thought, well, nobody was watching. And then I realized that the Lord was watching what should I do? And I'm like, run outside, man. Run. Run outside. And they're like, it's February. I go, exactly. <laughs> that will help. That will totally help. They'll be like, look at that neighbor's kid outside running his bare feet in the snow again. What's he up to? But that's the exit sign. God will provide a way out. Verse 4, he says, David says, look on my right hand and see. Now, you would expect Culturally, for the, that was the right hand would be on your help, would be on your, would be your, the help would be in your right hand, so it's symbolic of help. For there is no one who acknowledges me. Now see what he's falling back into? A little bit of kind of a pity party. And the version says, no one is concerned for me. No one stands up for me. Then he says, refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. 
Another version says, there is no refuge for me. No one cares for my life. No one cares about me. And here David seems to drift into the no one cares syndrome. Now, did you know that no one cares is a byproduct of isolation? Because when you're by yourself long enough, you will begin to think nobody actually cares. And so David feels totally alone in this. Now, most of us know that it's quite possible to feel totally alone in a crowded room or even in a house full of people. It's, it's totally possible. Do you ever see those commercials on TV? And I'm not making fun of it at all. I think it's really well done about somebody who has depression and they're sitting in the living room and there's a bunch of people standing around talking and laughing and they're kind of sitting in the corner quiet with a cloud over their head. To me, that's a great visual of what somebody might be, be going through. And so then it's possible to drift from no one cares about me to does God even care about me? I mean, after all, if he knew my path... How could he allow me to get into this mess? And it's hard to say here, but I think for David and for all of us, it's important to remember that if we engage in the Word of God and prayer before the cave, that's why I tell people, if you want to really develop a good relationship with God, don't wait till crisis to do it. Develop it in non-crisis, so that will be your default in crisis to cry out to the Lord. It's also important to have friends before the cave, because friends can come and get you out of the cave. And so, so prayer before the cave, friends before the cave, will certainly help us with life in the cave. Now, depending upon where David is right now, we do know that eventually, that when David was in the cave of Adullam, God did send people to help David, about 400 warriors. Then he was probably like, oh, this cave is too crowded, right? But, but he did send people to him. But we forget such things when we are overwhelmed. We forget such things when we are lonely. And when we're overwhelmed and lonely, you put those two things together, what happens? We drift into self-centered living. And self-centered living is such a prison. It's such a prison. And although it's true, when we need help, it's nice to have friends you can count on, isn't it? It's nice to have family you can count on. That's one of the reasons why God describes the church as a, as a family. But this is often why people are disappointed in the institution of church. But church don't think of it as the institution. Think of it as friends and family. And, and you, if, you're, if you have friends and family in the church, that becomes time to make a need known. Verse 5, he says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Here David does the right thing. He's sort of wallowing in his self-centered pity party. And so instead of wallowing in his sorrow... Instead of just venting, what does he do? He takes his feelings to the Lord. He realizes that no human can help him now, so what does he do? He does the right thing and takes his refuge in the Lord. 
Is his life still in jeopardy? Yes. But David realizes that in the state that he's in, God is all he has. So instead of being bitter, David puts all of his weight on God. He puts everything on him. And what's the result? The result of putting all of your weight on God is this. The result of being in the Word of God daily, the, 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 the result of being in communion with God is this. David begins to see the unseen. You say, well, what was the unseen? That God was his refuge all along. That's what he sees. That he was never really alone. He sensed that he was. There was no human being there. And, and, and I understand why we need humans. People say, oh, I only need me and God. That's all I need. Well, God disagrees. He saw Adam. He's like, you need a friend. Why? Because God is relational. God is a trinity. People say to me, I don't believe in the trinity. Well, who did God love before, the, before we came along? And so we are relational people. God understands that. But in this sense, God is the only one that he has. In, in the earthly sense, and this is something that a lot of people don't even realize in the earthly sense that God, God was his refuge from his earthly enemies, but in a very real sense, and actually in a more real sense, although distant from most of our thinking, God is also a refuge from God. A lot of times we don't think about that. You say, how's that? By seeking refuge in Jesus Christ, by putting your trust in him, you are rescued from God for the judgment for your sins. This is far greater than being protected by man. Many times that we read in the Bible, what can man do to me? At the end of the day, what can man do to me? In Luke 12, 4 and 5, we read Jesus' famous words, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. On a different note, it's easy for us to forget how fear, failure, and loneliness lead us to God. And David has crossed over that bridge. It's really an incredible bridge when you cross over it. It's sort of like, it's like the whole world just opens up before your eyes. It's sort of like you know, not being able to see and then somebody opening your eyes for the first time. Or those of us who don't see as well as we used to, we you know, put on a pair of glasses and, and we, can see, we can see a lot better than we did before. And so David sees that God, in, in all of that trouble, has, God has shown him that he is his refuge and David is grateful. Now, in verse 1, David cried out. It was a cry of desperation. But verse 5, look what he says here. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. This is a different cry. This is a cry of faith. This is a cry of trust. You know, and if you're a follower of Jesus, this is very important. It's very important to remember the moments that you have in your life when you sense the presence of Christ very powerfully. Very important that you remember some of those times. Sometimes I go to certain places and, and I just, 
I, you know, I, I walk into the church where I became a follower of Jesus, and I become so emotional because I just remembering how I sensed the voice of God in that place, in that moment. Very, very powerful. Happens to me every time I step in the baptismal pool with somebody. That just that moment of thinking like, oh my gosh, Lord, this is, this is someone who has moved from death into life as you move me from death into life. This is so, so wonderful. Think of times when you heard the voice of the Lord. Times when you poured out your faith and your trust to Him. Do you have those times? You can cry out to the Lord. David realized that God himself was his refuge. He also says here in verse 5 that he was his portion in the land of the living. Now, big talk in the United States about portion sizes. People are always talking about portion sizes. And uh, in our loneliness, we feel like we got no portion of anything. <laughs> you feel like the food went all around the table, and by the time it came to you, every bowl was empty. That, that's the way you feel in loneliness. That's the way you feel in, in, in sadness when you, when you feel like nothing's going right. But David says, I don't need a portion of anything because God is my portion. And notice where he says it. He doesn't say in heaven. He says in the land of the living. I believe that's an expression for here on earth where David is ultimately saying, here, God is all we really need. How different that is than the empty value systems of this world. You know, you, you, you got to get this car. You got to get this house. You have to get this. You have to get that. David says, listen, and David had a lot of stuff. David said, ultimately, what we need is the Lord. In a very sad time, Jeremiah wrote this, Lamentations 3, 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Isn't that a wonderful advantage that a follower of Jesus has? That no matter how bad things are going, there's hope for us. We always have the hope of the Lord. Verse 6 brings us back to David's situation. He says, attend to my cry. Another version says, listen to my cry, for I am brought very low. He's willing to admit that he's brought very low. Another version says, I am in desperate need, God. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. So David admits that, that he's low, that he's in need, and he, and he does not hesitate to cry out to God. Now, some people would say, that's not showing a lot of faith. I think that's the exact opposite of what God wants us to take away from this. I think God wants us to see that crying out to God, this, even in the roller coaster of I'm up, I'm down, you're my refuge, I'm crying out, I don't know what to do, that's a sign of faith, not of unbelief. Why is he confident? He's confident because David is convinced that God saves those who are in desperate need of him. If you're watching you're not a follower of Jesus, and you know that you need a Savior. You know that you need the forgiveness of sins. You know that, that you're not going to heaven, and you're desperate. Tell God that. That is a prayer that he will answer. He will save your soul. Tell him you want to trust in Jesus, not yourself. Psalm 116.6 says this, The Lord preserves, the idea is he protects the simple. I was brought low 
and he saved me. I know some of us have seen people walk in the aisle in church and they're high-fiving people on the way down and, you know, oh, this is great, this is great. But I've seen other people go down the aisle in that church in tears, broken and sobbing. And I'm like, yep, that's the one who God will look upon. Many people, you may be one of them, thinks that your prayer needs to be eloquent. Your prayer does not need to be eloquent. God loves the prayers of children, doesn't he? Childlike and or desperate prayer are very common in the word of God. And he responds to that. Verse 6 is a declaration by David in his despair that God is his Savior. And true faith depends upon God our Savior. David knows his enemy is too strong for him. David knows he's in over his head. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you feel like you're in over your head. So what does he do? He looks for the Lord to pick him up. He knows he's too weak for this situation, so he looks to the Lord's strength for help. For those who trust Jesus in daily living, Jesus saves us from so many things in life and ultimately from death itself. So we come to verse 7. He says, bring my soul out of prison. Now, we don't know, is he actually in prison? Is it the, is it the cave? Is it the circumstances? That I may praise your name. Let's stop right there. Despair, depression, loneliness, sickness, suffering can seem like a prison. And David says, Lord, would you please let me out of this prison? I'm asking you. And a lot of times being let out of the prison will just be helped by just knowing the presence of God. But notice this. He says, we get it. Let's read the, again the beginning of verse 7. Bring my soul out of prison. Why? So I can be happy? No. Why does he be, want to be set free from prison? So he's freed that I may praise your name. Now, perhaps he's just frustrated, feeling guilty. Maybe it was his sin that put him in the situation was he in. And you say, well, is that okay to talk to God about that? Of course it is. David was the man after God's own heart. He was the one that God picked to, picked to be king. God knew his path. God was teaching him along this path. And David got into a lot of bad situations by this way. Young people, listen up. In his fear, David made friends with a lot of people he shouldn't have. And it took him away from the Lord. Many of us have been in a prison of one sort or another, and we praise the one who set us free, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's you today. If that's you, friend, I hope that you are encouraged by David's up-and-down faith but notice this, he always comes back. He always comes back. And never do you get the sense at all in this psalm that God doesn't want him back, that he can't come back. Verse 7 continues, again, bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. And um, he, 
it's interesting, he continues, and often our coming back is joining the people of God, the community of God's people, temple for them, we call it church, uh, to praise the name of the Lord. He says, the righteous surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Another version says, you shall deal generously with me or in goodness with me. Now, the Word of God does not, not, not hide that there will be times of sadness in our lives. But the Word of God also holds out a promise that a faith that is stretched, a faith that fights through the pain to respond in faith and trust to the Lord is a faith that will grow stronger. It will. Despite feeling alone, despite feeling that nobody cares, by crying out to the Lord, David is filled with a renewed hope. And when you got hope, when I have hope, we can do a lot of things. But living without hope is very, very hard. We said it before, but it always bears repeating. He began with crying, but now he's ready for singing as goodness surrounds David through the people of God. There's just something special when God's people come together. Notice David's faith does not draw him away from the people of God, but it draws him to public worship with the people of God. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you've noticed this, you notice that, that the public worship of God's people, the importance of it is downplayed in the American church because we have what we would call a very low view of church compared to the Word of God. And David fights through the isolation and longs to be reunited with the people of God. And that's going to be a tough thing for a lot of people coming back to church, Lord willing, when, and Lord, please take this virus away. Have mercy on us. That's what we need to be crying out to God. Have mercy on us. We know we've sinned. Your church has just taken everything too lightly. We've had a low view of too many different things. We'll talk some about that Sunday. And, and, but when you fight through the isolation and you're reunited with the people of God, together we will experience the loving care of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean if you're compromised, you come out. That doesn't mean if you're afraid. But, but there's a sense of isolation that we're all going to have to fight off. Before, it was just a segment of people who had that isolation. Now, it's really kind of everybody. And we have, to, we have to fight it off. Practically, for us as a church, we have to realize when people need help, we may not always be able to help. You may not always be able to help. But you're always able to care. You're always able to love. You're always able to pray. Sometimes I think we're prone to expect too much from people. You know, David says no one cares. 
And then you can go to that other side, which is just as dangerous, if not worse. You come to the place where, you know, you, don't, you say, I'm not going to expect too much from people. I'm not going to expect anything from people. And both of those places are not good places to be. No human can really understand the way you feel about something. Do you, do you, we, under, we have to understand that. No human being can really understand how the way you feel about something. You know why? Because they're not you. And in a lot of our situations, we don't understand how we feel about something. We just know that we're just a sea of emotions, and, and we, we really can't even put words on it. But Jesus can. Loneliness was a big part of his life. I mean, could you imagine being from heaven and coming to live here? <laughs> Feeling a little out of place there, Jesus? Really? <laughs> I just imagine... You know, his, his mom rubbing his hair before he goes to bed at night, and he's like, I'm not like the other boys, am I, Mommy? And she's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Jesus was deserted by friends. He was lonely. He was even deserted by his heavenly Father on the cross. He was alone. He was, he was becoming, we said, in the Garden of Gethsemane in our studies in Matthew, he was becoming undone. But Jesus will never, never, ever desert you. But you have to put your trust in him. You have to do it initially to become a child of God. But then you have to do it continually. Because there is a, there is a certain amount of maintenance we have to do. When we've been studying it on Sunday, abiding. We'll continue that abiding. That's how you stay close to Jesus. Jesus will save you. He'll be your refuge. He'll be your rescuer. Jesus will even help you now with your loneliness, which he knows all about here on earth in the land of the living. And when we are reunited with him in heaven, those things will never be part of our life anymore. Well, let's pray.